This is In Conversation. Wait, no. This is Radio Reorient, part of Network Reorient, the podcast arm of the Critical Muslim Studies Project. So some of you may remember from um, before, for quite a few episodes, I've mentioned that we were in the middle of a rebrand and to, you know, get a new name for this show. Well, yes, we finally pulled the trigger. Um, in Conversation is no more, and now we have Radio Reorient taking its place. Today's episode is a special episode, and inshallah we will be fully launching the new program along with a new team uh, for Network Reorient soon, inshallah. Please stay tuned for more information regarding this. Inshallah, we will be having uh, Eid al-Adha later this month, and I would like to take this opportunity to wish our listeners an early Eid Mubarak, and for those completing their Hajj this year, uh, we pray that Allah accepts this from you. Uh, Much has happened since I last spoke to you. One of the biggest events uh, has been that the Turkish election has occurred, with Erdogan winning against the opposition coalition. Another major event uh, that is the subject of today's special episode, actually, is the ongoing political crisis in Pakistan. Uh, so today's episode features Shea Ali Tareen and Salman Saeed talking to Shaila Khan on this current political crisis that has gripped Pakistan. Let's listen in. Assalamu alaikum and hello and welcome to our listeners. This is Radio Reorient and I'm your host today, Shala Khan. Today I'll be conversing with Professor Salman Sayed and Dr. Shara Litharin about the political crisis in Pakistan. We will be exploring ways to extend analysis of the crisis by touching upon themes that are underexplored, obscured or outright erased in much of the discourse on the subject and that includes media coverage and broader commentary. Now, for some context, the crisis that I've just mentioned is both deep and wide, and it appears to signal the advent of the political in the sense of a moment when the established order of rule has run its course, and the fault lines between rival groups are defined with unprecedented clarity. At the center of the crisis is the figure of the ex-Prime Minister Imran Khan, who's ousted from power in a thinly disguised military intervention in April 22, became the catalyst for the the turmoil that engulfs the country today. Pakistan today is a de facto military dictatorship supported by complicit civilian political actors. The regime inhabits a no man's land when there is no formal declaration of martial law, yet the state constitution stands violated the judicial system depleted, and on occasion subverted by the recent establishment of military courts. Within the space, the regime enjoys full immunity. It deploys the full coercive armory of the state to bludgeon the population into submission and prevent Khan's return to power. It resorts to gross abuses of human rights that amount to crimes against humanity under international law. Torture, abduction, internment, murder, rape, and intimidation against Khan's party, uh, uh, Khan's party workers and supporters are its standard operating procedures. Now, while there is little doubt that the regime survives through brute force, let us begin the conversation by looking at its discursive pillars. And here we might revisit Dr. Tareen's 
writings on what he termed Imranophobia. So, Dr. Tareen, would you like to remind us of what you meant by the term and tell us whether you still think it's a valid descriptor of the various individuals and groups who serve as this regime's principal flag bearers and apologists? Uh, thank you so much, uh, Shela, to you and to Salman for this opportunity. Um, yeah, when I coined that term, I'm sure there were other people before me as well who must have used this term in an article called Liberal Fundamentalists and Iranophobia. What I was particularly after was, to be very clear, it's not some kind of a term that I'm applying to those who critique Imran mm. and his politics. Uh, one can yeah. be critical, one ought to be critical, and in fact, intensely critical of some aspects. What I was mm. after was a certain uh, inclination and proclivity to caricature uh, this person, mm. uh, take, cherry-pick some quotations here and there and construct a whole narrative around it, uh, mm. and uh, to really suppress anything that might be admirable about his discourse and politics, and to present this kind of a caricatured view uh, in the public sphere, which does not uh, sit well with a more nuanced study of his discourse, of his politics. Uh, mm. That, for me, as a student of the humanities, more than anything else, is problematic when you, uh, you know, turn... Uh, uh, religious figures, politicians, et cetera, into caricatures. Uh, and in this case, that caricature, uh, I think, has a lot to do with his insistence on uh, engaging with uh, Islam, engaging with Islam as a founder mm. of politics. Uh, one can, again, be critical of how he mobilizes Islam. One can be critical and look at some of the tensions or contradictions of that. But this underlying secular push to mm -hmm. delegitimize an actor who might have any inclination to uh, look at Islam as a possible reservoir of political action is at the heart of this caricatured, dehumanized, oftentimes uh, obnoxiously sarcastic uh, representations of him uh, that have now reached dangerous proportions. And uh, this uh, disease of Imranophobia is one that multiple kinds of actors suffer in varied degrees of uh, intensity. But I think underlying it is this uh, 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 deep-seated and deep-rooted uh, secularity uh, of how dare a brown Muslim man invoke and mm. mobilize Islam as a fountainhead of politics. Uh, and oftentimes this whole critique of him being you know, uncritical of the military and him being a project of the military, all of that is there. But mm -hmm. the underlying push, if, the same, if this same Imran Khan would say things like, you know, inane uh, things like uh, enlightened moderation, uh, like Musharraf, or the yeah. grammatic grammatically clunky, uh, sure. you know, slogans mm -hmm. like democracy is the best revenge. I'm very sure that the degree and the intensity of the critique that he faces and this kind of caricature representations would not be there. There is an underlying liberal secular desire to delegitimize a Muslim actor invoking Islam as a form of politics. That is the, at the heart of Imranophobia for me. I just want to come in there because, I mean, I agree with Sher Ali, but I think also we should put this into context because that liberal fundamentalism, that secularism is basically rooted into a very deep-seated Eurocentricism behind that, where basically mm -hmm. modernity can only have a particular mask and mm -hmm. therefore, and that mask, modernity manifests itself as being something distinct from the Islamicate, from Islam, etc. And you see the same forces um, in, in Egypt, and you see them in Turkey, you see them everywhere in which you have those who represent themselves as being um, somehow uh, lifestyle liberals, 
and committed to democracy, human rights, etc. But they never extend that um, human rights or that kind of um, liberal kind of openness or democratic rights to, for example, uh, political forces which may favor some kind of articulation of the Islamic or Islamic political identity, whether it's the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt or the AK Party in Turkey, you will have the same people who will criticize these um, the authoritarianism of these regimes, but also then demand military intervention, for example, in Turkey or in mm. Egypt against the Morrissey government. So I think this phenomenon that Sherali's um, um, identified in relation to Imran, I think has a longer um, range, but it has kind of specificities of Pakistan, and we can maybe go on to that, but it also has a very deeply intense kind of Orientalism. And, and I would say, in fact, taking on Edward Said's kind of articulation of Orientalism as a form of Islamophobia, it is ultimately an Islamophobia which expresses itself through these kinds of manifestations, which empties out any kind of critical um, value in some of the statements that uh, like um, Imran Khan made and puts a kind of a comparison which doesn't seem to extend. I mean, I don't understand how you could think the statements that Zardari or Sharif or others make are of a, they're not necessarily more sagacious or more philosophical or more erudite or even have any more ideas. So Mm -hmm. it is very, very one-sided, like Sherilyn said. But I think we have to think of this as part of that kind of broader sensibility right now through the Islamosphere where you have a large segment of the population which presents itself as being liberal and democratic, but it doesn't practice that in its own local environments where it remains disruptive and suspicious of any articulation of Islam with popular um, mobilizations against authoritarian regimes. It cannot imagine that. It cannot imagine a future in the key of Islam either. Right. And I think that's a really important point because, again, to insist that one can and should be intensely critical of many aspects of his politics. One could say that, you know, it's the uh, uh, the PTI is the Pakistan justice movement, but when he was in power, the injustices of the military elite uh, were basically not considered. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. In fact, there was a, you know, there could, reasons might have been for political expedience, but that is something one can be intensely critical of. One can be intensely mm-hmm. critical of some statements regarding sexual violence that have perhaps been a bit elementary, if not coerced. So there are many other things that one can point out here. Uh, so again, the point here is not that anyone who critiques him and his politics uh, is mm-hmm. what we're calling liberal fundamentalists or those who are, uh, you know, uh, suffering from Imranophobia. But again, the intensity of these critiques and the degree to which those critiques are uh, emphasized and anything that might be admirable of his politics is completely suppressed um, mm-hmm. is suggesting of a certain kind of a form of critique that is not based on political disagreement, but something much deeper than that. And that much deeper thing is a certain kind of an orientalist Islamophobia uh, that different actors articulate in different mediums and different ways at different moments in time. So are we then saying that it's basically the same groups of people who were sort of, who who caricatured Imran Khan in this way and who are now serving as the as the regime's chief apologists, or are there new actors who, who've joined the fray? Uh, and secondly, I think I'd also uh, pick up on, on this point that just as this, just as there's a 
there's a different, you know, there's a difference between legitimate criticism of uh, Imran Khan and caricature, which is, you know, which completely ignores um, sort of the, the nuances of his politics, as you as you said, Dr. Tareen. Um, should there or uh, should there not be a difference or, you know, a gap between even that kind of caricature and overt and, you know, kind of unflinching support for a regime which is as brutal as the current regime? So I'd, I, I'd like to hear both I mean, of you. I don't know. Them. Well, I just think, I mean, I think that we're beyond the should. I mean, in a sense that people should ought to behave better is something that we could everyone could agree upon. I think what is really we need to explain, and I think this is what I think Sherry is trying to get at, is how do you account for almost that visceral intensity of that um, displeasure? And how does that get repeated? And part of it is, 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 is you know, it, it has, like I said to you, it is not something completely singular to Pakistan. But in, in Pakistan, it plays out with a different variance than other places because everyone has a different history. But for me, and I think what Sherry was trying to say, is not that it is not within the kind of range of, you know, you can prefer one political leader to another political leader. You can complain about their policy. You can complain about their complicities. You can take about the roots they haven't done. You can complain about their economic policies. They can do all sorts of things like that. But underlying it, it seems to me, is the idea that there should be, Islam should not have a place in the public sphere. Islam should not be part of any attempt to mobilize. And the challenge here is this, that what that really means is really endorsement of ethno-nationalism in these contexts, because if you say that Islam is illegitimate, then you end up saying that the only legitimate identification is a kind of a ethno-nationalist one, which repeats the kind of oriented discourse around racialized forms of nationalisms. Um, and that has both a kind of a methodological implication that everything becomes, you know, the national uh, methodological nationalism to explain events, etc. Everything's so peculiar, but also in terms of how you can imagine anything better. And the, uh, the difference here is the challenge of all of this is that, you know, you hear commentators, um, many people from Pakistan are talking about the Turkish invasion in relation to um, Turkish um, TV programs being shown in Pakistan. I mean, again, how does that manifest itself as an invasion? I mean, it just seems the extreme extremity. Mm. They're the same mm. people who will not complain about the Hollywood invasion, which carries on all the time. So if you're going to talk about invasions, I think you would demand a degree of consistency. And I think in the absence of that, you see that visceral element, which is actually debilitating for any kind of political process in these countries, because you then have a grouping which is not able to accept a, a, set, a future in which um, Islam may be present. I mean, that's the fundamental problem here. Yeah, and the events of the past 13 months have, you know, one clearly shown that this uh, assembly of uh, 13 or 14 parties called the PDM are anything but democratic, that the vote of no confidence mm -hmm. was basically engineered and orchestrated by a military chief uh, with at least uh, tacit support, if not explicit support from empire, from the US uh, empire. 
Um, and in these 13 months, what we have seen is a blatant violation of the Constitution. Uh, and obviously, of course, you know, constitutions can also be used in very violent ways. So let us not privilege and sacralize nation state constitutions that much either. Uh, but it has been blatantly violated uh, with uh, the re refusal to hold elections. Uh, most recently, 25 people have died. Before that, scores others have also lost their lives. Seven to 10,000 people have been jailed. An autistic young man was sexually assaulted and then murdered uh, by the military. Uh, there have been assassination attempts on Imran Khan. There is no possibility of uh, any political assembly uh, from his party. And now, most recently, you have, you know, um, uh, major political players of that party being coerced and forced into making these farcical statements that they are no longer part of the party. Most recently, Malika Bukhari, very talented lawyer who Absolutely, left yeah. the UK, went mm -hmm. to Pakistan, and some very important, you know, female political talent uh, is being Absolutely, lost uh, yes. mm -hmm. in a very coerced way uh, by the military elite. So, if all of this happens, and your main reaction to that is, well, there has been precedents. Well, this mm. used to also happen mm. in Balochistan. You know, I'm from Balochistan. Mm. I'm very close to, you know, uh, seeing firsthand how military cantonments and how these power relations work. Uh, mm. uh, but if that is your first reaction of, you know, finding precedence or just making sure that this is not something new or the the the, the prize of being anti-military is not taken away by the PTI, which was supposed to be a military project, if that narrative, mm. Mm. If, if, mm. If, if, if that narrative being a bit troubled is your main uh, point of uh, disturbance and displeasure, uh, then you really ought to, you know, examine your head and think about where your politics is coming from. Uh, is that more important? Or one can say, fine, there has been precedence, fine, we can be critical of Imran during his power, why did he not go after the military elite at all? One can make those critiques, but one should at least recognize the enormity in both senses of the, that word, the wickedness and the enormousness of what is happening here. But uh, some voices on the left have been very, I think, articulate and uh, politically just on that, but many have not been. And I think we need to yeah. think about the reasons for that, which goes back to this uh, commitment to a liberal view of politics that Imran troubles, that he does not fit in well, well with. Yeah, I mean, uh, this both sideism has been has been quite a major talking point on the part of these groups. And in fact, it seems to have fed into some of the media coverage, the international media coverage as well here, and especially um, media coverage from the US. Uh, it was also evident here uh, in, in the UK, but now I find that there has been something of a shift, something. Uh, there's still a very long way to go, but, but, but you know, you, you do see some change. Um, but I, I mean, I think this this is a completely unedifying line of argument to say, well, you know, we're worse or this this is worse or everything was the same. But in what way can we see the present crisis as a fusion of old and new? And I'm I'm not kind of limiting the discussion to you know a, a suffering as the, the key variable. How has it how has it vacated the space for a new kind of politics? What new currents has it generated? How is it transforming Pakistan's political landscape? I Either think <laughs> one of the reasons why this crisis is a crisis is because um, you had the possibility of a country ruled by dynasties posing as parties with the mm. background support of a, a, a very military elite and through not necessarily, I would say, with planning, but through circumstances and particular kinds of moves, you've got to a situation where you've had to create a 
alliance with all those political forces against one political party, which offers mm. something dis- different. So I think the crisis has become, as you said in the beginning, it has become political because politics of a particular kind have broken down. Now, the question is whether they can be restored, which is the hope, I think, of um, all the PTM and their handlers, that they will be restored once we get rid of this, or have things changed, gone too far to be restored? And for me, one of the biggest um, dangers is this, that in a sense, you're moving towards a situation which may be akin to what's in Egypt or Manamar, where you have a really, really pl- uh, vicious uh, forces plundering the population without any attempt of limiting um, limiting themselves or even any sense of had any sort of sense of um, the idea of any kind of social contract. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the danger lies. Because once you rip that apart, you, you know, you do, you have very little left. And and, and it is extraordinary that we've got themselves into such a situation. One of the things that always limits um, a certain kind of violence against the population has always been the sense of an external threat, because ultimately you need the people. Um, However, given what's going on now, there seems to be complete disregard of the kind of national security, especially at the time when you have a regime across the border, which is genocidal in its relationship to Muslimness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. So it just seems to me that there is a very, very short termism, and I'm not sure whether, you know, but this short termism could last a very, very long time. It could just be that there is no other alternative. There, and in that, you'll see the destitution of the country, um, you know, you face this thing. High, hyperinflation will affect the military as well. Inflation of eighty percent. How do you then pay soldiers? Mm. Um, mm. And part right, of it yeah. is that you allow them to unleash them on the population. Yeah, I mean, these mm. are kind of scenarios which are all possible. Um, or you make the deal that you know you sell off the nuclear um, uh, autonomy, but you can't do it publicly but you sell that off. So all of these become possible and thinkable. And, you know, the worst case scenario often is, you know, the idea of a kind of fragmentation or basically a state of war, constant low level war, where you have a population which completely is disconnected with those who rule over it. And if the gap between rulers and ruled goes on for a long time and with such viciousness, it normally doesn't end well for either people. I think, Shaila, in response to your question, the events of May 9th really capture the most evil side of what is happening recently and also perhaps the most promising side of what can happen. Mm. The evil Mm. side, of course, which did not get reported is that over 30 people were killed. And what has really become the main story within the Pakistani media, especially, but even perhaps elsewhere, is the burning of some military installations or this core commander's house was perhaps, uh, you know, burnt as if, you know, this brick, which is already a symbol of uh, neo-colonialism is more important than the lives mm. of 30 people. So so that, you know, uh, gruesome loss of life is perhaps the most, uh, uh, you know, is, is represents the kind of the evil side of what is happening today but on the bright side you did find you know an elderly woman uh, uh shaking the gates of the ghq and going mm. i think 
you know, regardless of who was, I, you know, I will say something somewhat provocative, which actually should not be provocative, but I guess uh, from mainstream perspective, that, you know, barging into the house of a core commander's house is, I think, very symbolic of a new kind of politics where mm. uh, un the underlying intimacy between empire and the military elite is something which has become part of the consciousness of, uh, you know, the middle class in places like Lahore, those who may have been enamored with the military previously. Uh, this change of heart that has happened, I think, is enormously useful. And it's a huge uh, boon that has come about from this politics that it makes possible all kinds of alliances. Uh, you know, yeah. for those on the left, they can, you know, I think rather than caricaturing these people or saying, oh, this is not the first time this has happened or they're not the real revolutionaries because they're not radical socialists. I think this is a moment of possible alliances, like what happened, for example, in Gwadar, where jamaat islami people and people on the left came together to, to protest against military power and elite. So I think it has made possible these kinds of politics, uh, where you have the Patans and the Punjabis of, say, Lahore, etc. Uh, you have people on the left and uh, those who are part of this new middle class, uh, to use the terminology of Amara Maksud. Uh, so these alliances have become possible, and the... the the, the 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 nakedness of uh, the neo imperial power which is in, inhered and invested in the military elite has become very obvious to the entire country that ultimately uh, and excuse my uh, perverse language even the, ultimately the military elite of pakistan give or take has been uh, serving as uh, agents or uh, of empire yeah, but I mean, Cheryl, this is actually really important because in a sense, um, it is partly the schizophrenia of the military as well. On the one hand, their entire institutional um, framework, their regiments, their honours are basically as inheritors of the British Indian Army, which was there to keep the British Empire. Right. At the same time, there are elements of them which talk about Tipu Sultan and talk about the kind of Muslim heroes, etc., and and it's, and I think you're absolutely right. I think one of the things that happened is this that kind of exposure that the military or sections of the elite military, this company Sarkar, are no longer invested in defending the sovereignty of the country. Right. And that opens up because without that, the always claim was that they are the defenders of the country. But if you can't even defend the country's sovereignty, then you cannot be defenders of the country in any shape, way or form. Right. And I think what you're seeing is the possibility of a kind of a patriotic faction, because there are military officers, I think, who would still want to say, think about or, you know, abide with the idea of an independent foreign policy, for example, an independent nuclear deterrent, all of these things, they would want to value themselves as being independent and custodians of that independence, however flawed that may be. And there are others who seem to have somehow under the cover of being professional, simply given up any kind of ideological commitment to the state itself and to the independence of the state. And I think that has become very obvious and I think has ruptured that kind of intimacy often um, that you see between the public and the military. I think one of the things that people forget is that martial law regimes in Pakistan, as elsewhere, had a particular grammar that you kind of knew what to do, how things were structured. And in many ways, there were um, many things or would argue, well, things become, and there's always a discourse among, um, you know, privileged people of particular kinds or even middle-class people, et cetera. Well, at least things become more efficient, or at least there's the low-level corruption becomes less. Right. Um, I'm not being hustled on the street. Um, there are less people who mess and things are running in an orderly way. Now, again, that would vary from place to place, but there was a general kind of narrative 
that military rule brought um, some kind of evenness and plain uh, plain, which was there. And that grammar has been ruptured. Right. Right. You know, it actually, the idea was that military rule would often mean a reduction in the everyday violence, intensification of violence against particular dissident groups, et cetera, et cetera. And that would be the narrative. But in everyday things, it meant that you as a citizen had greater safety. Right. And that was part of that compact. And I think the rupturing of that is both a hopeful moment because it actually means that the military has to be reformed and reform itself if it wants to carry on institutionally. And I don't know if there has been that level of intense debate, and I wouldn't put it much further than that, within the military hierarchy. When you have ex-Lieutenant Generals being hauled off and being arrested like this, 80-year-old um, men, you know that you've turned the corner somewhere. Right, right. Right. And 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 you don't have to believe much more than that. And you know, but there is certainly a possibility of having to rethink that civil military relationship in another framework. And I think that is where perhaps the hopefulness comes into it that you're talking about. Yeah, I think and connected to that, I think in one of his most recent speeches, uh, one of the most striking things I noticed in Imran Khan's speeches, he mentioned uh, in passing that he said, you know, the kind of um strife and the kind of tyranny we have faced in the last few days, this is only a fraction of what the Kashmiris have been facing for decades. Now, that's Mm -hmm. a very subtle but important move where basically he's connecting uh, the logic of a military elite with that of a Hindu nationalist, um, you know, government and military in India, with Mm -hmm. Israel, etc. So it's a very interesting kind of discursive dance that he's doing that on the one hand, he says, you know, I don't know why they're so upset with me. I don't know why they want to take me out. I just want to, I'll be okay with them. I won't interfere with them. But on the other hand, his discourse and his politics has presented this very uh, difficult to capture this uh, resistance when he's named people in the ISI in Dirty Harry and so on, uh, and has connected with, uh, you know, the, the American imperial power and now the BJP and Israel in implicit ways, of course. So I think that's precisely the reason for the kind of intense pushback that we are seeing is that here you have uh, an internal enemy whose discourse is a bit subtle uh, in terms of how it is critiquing uh, the whole military elite and uh, the empire that goes with it. Absolutely. And, you know, when it trickles down to to children or to sort of, you know, adolescents who are making TikTok videos about the present crisis, then something is happening. Uh, you know, something very, very significant is happening. And I, I think I read something on Twitter today about a brigadier who said that his own children were, were, were basically, you know, were, were extremely critical of the army and were saying that we cannot suppose, we cannot support a force that kills its own people. And I think the brigadier, the father tried to sort of explain that, no, you, you know, you, these are not the kinds of thoughts that you should entertain about the about the force, about the military. And then, but the children insisted, they stood their ground and they said, no, um, you know, whatever you say, this is just not acceptable. So yeah. something clearly is is afoot. And uh, I, I guess we'll see over the, you know, over the years, over the months and years, how this plays out. Mm-hmm. I just want to bring us, just, just to just make a small observation as a qualifier about the events of May the 9th. I mean, they are highly, highly contested. Um, they're, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the grounds for following the government's narrative are increasingly looking flimsy and shaky. Because not only do you have these citizen videos, you know, eyewitnesses who recorded instances of, 
plain clothesmen descending from military vehicles, police vehicles, and, you know, armed with truncheons and whatnot, and then proceeding to set fire or, you know, to proceeding to commit acts of arson or smash property, so on and so forth. So there's that. Uh, and then there's actually testimonies, even from uh, some military officers who said that it is completely bizarre how the approach to the corps commander's house was completely cleared of its customary, you know, controls. I mean, that area is is a highly restricted area. It's very, very difficult to even, you know, step foot in there. Even an ordinary person who's loitering for a few minutes gets questioned as to, you know, what are you doing? Why? And and on the other hand, you have this, you know, an, an entire crowd which is allowed to walk through. So there are suggestions of entrapment of false flag operations and so forth, which we really cannot ignore. Uh, and they would be completely consistent with all the other tactics that this regime uses to kind of, you know, to to enforce its its writ and, yeah. and to basically continue its witch hunt. Uh, so we, we can't overlook that. But I think uh, you mentioned Imran Khan and, and sort of his recent statements. Let, let's talk a bit about uh, Imran Khan's political philosophy, uh, because it's it's often said that, you know, he's full of good intentions, but actually he lacks an ideology. Um, and uh, more significant, even more significantly, that he really has nothing to offer besides populism. Now, that trope, the trope of populism, is something that the Western press picks up all the time, even when, they, when you know, it's trying to sound sort of half sympathetic. Uh, it's always there. I mean, the first thing is Imran Khan's politics are about populism and nothing more. Um, how, how would you see that? How would you respond to that? Um. I think the argument about political philosophy is is interesting. If you think about some of the things consistently Imran Khan has talked about, if let's take, for example, independent foreign policy, um, the idea of a certain kind of welfare, a provision for um, the population. Now, it seems to me that is consistently done. It's, it's fairly, uh, and it tries to enact upon it, and doesn't mean that every kind of um, mechanisms for enacting it is always the best solution because there's also a, a, another question about um, the understanding of some of the phenomena. And I think you can also criticize Imran Khan in, in that regard that is um, perhaps is not necessarily clear. He understands the political structures that have come into being and what the obstacles have been. And so, for example, you know, there's a lot about the rule of law recently, and partly it's obviously. Um, strategic and confining the situation he's in, but also, mm -hmm. you know, it's something that comes from um, something like Fukuyama's analysis about, you know, what makes a good country, basically, it's a good laws mm -hmm. and, and, and mm -hmm. institutions and things like that. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole narrative about what, how do you achieve, um, a, you know, a, a successful society. And, you know, you can, you can dispute that, you can look at, for example, one of the neglect, neglecting points, maybe, um, the need for radical economic reforms and all of those sorts of things and, and, and ex, ex, um, economic experimentation, all of those kind of mixed bag there. But I think there is a political philosophy in that sense that it ties in with a sense that I think has existed uh, for a while among the um, you know among Muslims, um, intellectuals, thinkers and people, which sort of says something like that um the idea of a, a society based around islam means a society which is just and which mm. gives hope 
and 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 those two things are not incompatible that you don't need to to get justice you don't need to get rid of true islam and in fact only true islam will actually provide you with justice and that has a, a very long pedigree and you know people often talk about it being associated with ideas of people like madhudi or sayyid qutb or khomeini etc and they have a family resemblance despite their various mm. differences and things that their basic logic is that islam is the only best way of guaranteeing um social equality and social justice basically so in that sense he clearly is marked himself in that and i think this is where sherry's point earlier point was actually quite apt that this is what he cannot be forgiven for in a yeah. sense that he has allowed himself mm. to to accept that and he is quite consistent in that all the variations become tactical variations or variations that you learn from but he hasn't really ebbed away from that and and i think then there's always an attempt to try and reduce this agency well this was made up by the military and and this is where i think some of the shallowness of much of the kind of um so-called critical analysis comes into it that you know somehow these people have a read are able to brainwash imran khan or everyone else except they themselves are never brainwashed by anything <laughs> but it completely removes any sense of how actual um transformation of ideas works across the planes how things change um so you have this very kind of old fashioned narrative which still exists oh all of this happened because saudi arabia discovered oil and it used oil money to fund all of these islamicist governments and all of these uh, islamic movements and and then then hamid um gul met imran khan and gave him a little, you know it's almost this kind of gossip I'm as cool, analysis yeah. mm, uh, you know uh, made all these mm -hmm. things happen but if you think about it um Saudi Arabia did not give money to uh, Khomeini to have the Islamic Revolution, which challenged Saudi Arabia. It doesn't make any kind of sense. People like Sayyid Qutb or uh, Madhudi or um, Shariati or Khomeini, they were not influenced. These ideas were already in play. The people who followed them or agreed with them or discussed them is part of a much more broader tradition. And underlying all of this idea of petrodollars explaining everything is the inability to imagine that people who are not white and i mean white in a kind of um in a racialized sense um, rather than a phenotypical sense basically people who are of color cannot generate uh political ideas or any visions for themselves which have legitimacy and that mm. is the underlying position on that so i think there is a i would say you couldn't say that what is the philosophy of um zardari what is the philosophy of Nuhar Sharif? Do they have a political philosophy? I mean, if, you know, they don't, there is no way of linking these things together. And it is always about self-aggrandizement. And, and I think one of the reasons why so many people have flocked or understood or identified with the plight of the PTI and the plight of Imran Khan is because he articulates a way of think, a way of thinking and understanding the world that resonates with them, whether they're in the diaspora or whether they're inside the country. And that I think is a critical element of that. And many of the people who are both there's the West toxicated who are actually antagonistic and cheerleaders for authoritarianism or it's you know for kleptocr um, kleptocrats, they are unable 
or unwilling to concede the fact that that's what they are. Um, you know, they are basically out of, uh, they do not understand that the ground on their feet has changed. This idea mm -hmm. that somehow the West knows best, and even though they won't say it, because many of them, for example, in certain, you know, in American campuses will be also anti-racist and anti-colonial, etc. But when it comes to Pakistan, or, you know, or Egypt or Turkey, it's very, very interesting how they end up being in the same place as the most xenophobic, the most nationalist, the most authoritarian places. And I would say to you that if you are a person of goodwill and if you believe in these things, it should worry you a little bit that you always end up among the most oppressive and most repressive forces exactly. in society repeatedly exactly. in many different places. And if that doesn't I mean, worry you, then I, I would question not just your intelligence, but also perhaps your actual uh, integrity in your in the first place. Indeed. I mean, there, there is a searing irony here on, on both these counts. Firstly, the point about external funding. I mean, most of these individuals and groups are linked to international donors. Um, you know, they, they're usually in the first in line to present themselves as, as defenders of democracy and human rights. And that is where this bread is buttered, uh, you know, to put it rather bluntly. So, so you know, and, and that's established. This is fact. It, it's, it's not even speculation, number one. And secondly, in terms of having a consistent philosophy, well, exactly as, as you just said, what is, their, what is their political philosophy? If you can align yourself with one of the worst authoritarian, brutal authoritarian regimes that is currently in power on this planet at this point in time, what do you stand for? Yeah, so, yeah and I mean, it's very interesting. The um, If you look at his biography that he published, I think, in 2011, Imran Khan, a personal story, something like that, it's titled, he in fact mentions, you know, the earliest influences on him in terms of his readings in Islam, political philosophy, are Shariati and Iqbal. And mm. the, his whole articulation of this idea of uh, building a welfare state on the principles of justice from uh, the state of Medina, it's very interesting that on the one hand, it's this kind of a, a modernist uh, uh, political thought that is mm. trying to draw from Medina these principles of justice with which he wants to create a welfare state that mirrors Scandinavia, etc. And one can critique him for perhaps romanticizing Scandinavia, but it's it's an articulation of a politics of justice mm. and catering to the dispossessed, which does not pass through Europe, but rather mm. interrupts the modernity of Europe itself by drawing this idea of justice and uh, catering to the dispossessed from the state of Medina. So it's a very interesting kind of a decolonial uh, move that he makes that gets lost on commentators. And it's very interesting also that this whole fight against corruption is one that is deeply theological for him. This is a deeply theological fight uh, against corruption. Mm -hmm. And uh, frankly, the way he's articulated this modern Islam has really struck a chord uh, with large sorts of the population and most recently, I think in the last 13 months, he really has emerged as a certain synecdoche for popular sovereignty. Uh, and uh, the politics of those who are following him perhaps exceeds maybe the radicality of his own politics mm. that in a country yeah. where decisions are always made somewhere else, that somewhere else could be the political elite, it could be the military elite, it could be the American empire, that this whole idea of hakiki azadi one could caricature and lampoon it, but ultimately it is an invocation of a certain idea of popular sovereignty in conditions when that sovereign power seems to be completely lost.
And he in some ways has in, emerged as a symbol in synecdoche for that sovereign power. That I think explains the immense popularity that he has achieved. And he's articulated that kind of a vision through the language of Islam that also strikes and uh, you know uh, connects with a certain new Pakistani middle class. And I think this is a language that perhaps, you know, uh, those on the left can perhaps learn a bit from him in terms of how he's managed to articulate that as someone who's not an Islamic scholar, who is very much a th thoroughly a modernist figure. Uh, but uh, again, it complicates this whole binary between Islam and politics uh, that does not sit comfortably with, uh, with people. And the final thing I would say on that is that, you know, this constant refrain that we heard that his three and a half years were, a, you know, a complete disaster or incompetence and governance problems, etc. Fine, there might have been problems when one should identify them and critique him for that. But I think one has to identify a certain bedrock of his political philosophy has been pacifism and his very mm -hmm. principled mm -hmm. stance on the war on terror, that the collusion between the Pakistani military elite and American empire and what it did in places like uh, the uh, tribal areas uh, led to mm -hmm. its catastrophe and death. And that is one of the things that really explains his popularity among the Bataan populations, both in Balochistan and in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa. Yeah. Uh, and then when he came into power, the speech that he gave at the height of the Pulwama crisis, when India and Pakistan were about to go to war, it was a really excellent articulation of a certain vision of pacifism, that wars always lead to miscalculations, and uh, it ought to be thoroughly avoided. When the COVID-19 pandemic struck, he was the one who on March 25th, when even this had not come out in the scientific journals yet, he was the one who had the sense and, you know, the PPP, the, the kind of uh, aping the, the West and everything that it does uh, party, they went to lockdowns, they, they were getting all these laurels at how efficient they are at locking down Karachi and all these places. Mm. He had the insight and this intuitive insight that, no, if we go to lockdowns, that will really, uh, that will really... Uh, mm be to the detriment detriment of the poor populations. And then yeah. months later, mm -hmm. that became the conventional wisdom that was Absolutely. agreed yeah. on by social scientists, the, the medical practitioners, etc. But he had that wisdom and that came from this underlying political philosophy of catering to the dispossessed. Uh, when he came to power, he announced that he will give citizenship to the Afghan refugees in the country. Mm -hmm. The only reason why that did not happen is because it was the PPP again who uh, blocked that because it was uh, worried that their uh, voter uh, vote bank will dwindle in places like Karachi. So again, all of these things one can critique, all of these things one can find contradictions with, all of these things one can pick uh, you know, a bone with. Uh, but these are some admirable aspects of his political discourse uh, that you also have to acknowledge. So that's mm. good kind of Iranophobia that completely suppress anything admirable, take two or three things and construct a caricature of this mad person with a uh, with a cult following. And I really like the point that Salman made here that the idea here is that these millions of people have been blinded by a cult following of a former yeah. cricketer, while they somehow have this privileged knowledge uh, of what exactly should be proper politics. That there is an arrogant hubris here which is a colonial, orientalist, arrogant hubris. Sure. No, and I think one other thing I would just add to that, Sharon, is very important, is that I think ultimately his um, articulation of a political philosophy, and, and I'm sure there are people who sneer at that word being attached to a cricketer in a sense, you know, but that again is shows their own ignorance and stupidity as well, because, I mean, if you think about... Um, you know, there are many people who have political philosophies who are not necessarily working philosophy departments and things like that. And, you know, and uh, so, but leaving aside that, um, it also resonates with the project of Pakistan itself. And I think that is one mm -hmm. of the other elements of that, because ultimately, 
there is two things in what you just said there, which is very important. Pakistan is not a ethnic state. It cannot be an ethnic state for a variety of reasons. It has always tried to become an ethnic state in terms of being around a single ethnicity, but it's not possible. Mm. It wasn't made based on ethnicity. So when he, for example, wants to give uh, citizenship to Afghani refugees, it's actually a quite an interesting, especially in this day and age, where even in the so-called established liberal democracies, you're having restrictive citizenship, restricting citizenship, that you have an actual embrace of citizenship that should go further, that should be more inclusive. And I think those, again, those points is that his argument about the notion of, you know, there's the thing about the notion of the Medina as Pakistan as the possibility, as a metaphor. And again, they take it like everything else. Um, you know, you said about um, in his book that he talks about the reading of Shariati and, and um, uh, Iqbal. I mean, again, none of the other political leaders are known exactly for being able to, they're not necessarily known for reading much, but never being able to articulate that <laughs> reading into something sensible either. Uh, and, and the point is that that kind of argument and that kind of articulation actually does resonate with the project of Pakistan, which, again, I think is something that many, and I would say it's not just a new middle class, I think it is actually something which is percolates very deeply, but it is not necessarily something that's always been expressed and or the, system, the structures have allowed it to be expressed and articulated. So in that sense, what they see in him is saying things which are not that different from what they probably feel. And, but I agree with you on at the same point. I think we are moving to a situation where partly because of his own temperament, partly because of his own circumstances, partly because of a calculation, that he may find himself being outpaced because of those who want more now. Mm -hmm. And and you know and, mm -hmm. and and of course this is something that may need to be worked out. But right now, given where he is, one can understand to some extent um, the degree or the to be sort of more appear less problematic, to appear more because there is nothing. And I think this comes back to the sort of point that I want to make is that what Pakistan has never had is actually a political party that is actually a mass organization, which is actually a political party, which is a vector uh, mm -hmm. and a vehicle for carrying off ideas yeah. and <clears throat> implementing them, organizing counter-aids, having a kind of force. And you need a mass organization to actually sustain the kind of transformation that he wants. And I think one of the mistakes, and perhaps it's a mistake, or uh, it looks like a mistake, or it could have been there's no alternative, that the construction of the PTI as a conventional party limited its capacity to be an agent of transformation. Having said that, it is not conventional in the uh, lexicon of Pakistani political parties. There are very few political parties which are not dominated by nepotistic uh, leadership mm -hmm. and ties and things like yeah. that. Mm -hmm. So, but. I think what we would be talking would be a political party which is, or, or some organization which actually is capable of carrying, having the skills and resources needed to carry out the transformation that's need, um, what the country will have to have now, um, because otherwise there's no alternative. And that, I think, is what really the future holds. 
is the building of that organization, both in terms of educating ourselves and educating the to think about what is it, how can we achieve this? Educating about politics. As you said, the history of politics is that it is something that other people do. It is a removal of decision-making from sovereignty, mm. individual sovereignty. This is why there's conspiracy thinking, because everyone thinks they cannot imagine how decisions are made, because there's no, it's almost done in, um, you know, uh, through night and fog. You have no idea about that. And this is why even our analysts often you know, Pakistani analysts often tend to think in terms of basically methodological individualism. It's who said what to who is the entire story. Yeah, and and that I think is something that you know, unless you start having the capacity for structural analysis, you will not be able to deal with the challenges that Pakistan faces. I know we're coming to the end of our time, Shaila, but a very brief word to pick up on what Salman was saying on the political philosophy point. Um, I think this is precisely the absence of any kind of a thoughtful analysis of this political philosophy that generates this very hackneyed and popular idea of seeing everything in terms of a pro or anti-military perspective. Clearly, the military is extremely powerful, as we're seeing right now. It's uh, it's power we are seeing. Uh, but to see everything from a pro and anti-military perspective, what that misses is, for example, that uh, the PTI had a very small majority it had a coalition government in the Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province from 2013 to 18. But then in the yeah. 2018 elections, it came back with a two-thirds majority. Now, did yeah. all of that happen because of the military? No. In terms of my conversations also, the topmost uh, factor was the, 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 the health insurance system, that he, uh, universal health care that he brought about, the police system and the police stations that he reformed, many other things. Many were attracted to his Islamic modernism. Uh, so the Pakistani voter in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa or elsewhere is much more complicated than just a pro or anti-military, right? Uh, so, and even in Punjab, I'm sure that is the case. Uh, so this whole idea that he was some kind of an unpopular person in 2018 who was engineered only by the military is a very uh, simplified narrative in some constituencies, yeah. in fact. You know, it's it's a lot more uh, complicated than that. Uh, maybe there were some people who jumped ship because of the military being in a standoff with uh, Nawaz Sharif at that time. But he was not unpopular. He was clearly not as popular as he is now. But this whole idea that people have tested the two parties and they want to try a third one was very rampant come 2000, in 2018. And many people did vote for him for these reasons of universal health care, reform of the police system, this articulation of Islamic modernism, so on and so forth. Uh, so it's precisely the absence of any nuanced consideration of his political philosophy that then generates these very hackneyed and problematic kinds of narratives, which is a binary of pro or anti-military, which is precisely the problem with this whole narrative that, oh, these were the lovers of the military who are now have gone against them. So this is only about the evolution of PTI, and hence we should not say anything about what is happening in the country right now. So my primary, really, uh, critique comes from, as a humanities scholar, one must not simplify complicated discourses and phenomena. Um, yeah, and um, I, no, I, I guess in the current context, it, it begs the question as to if he really is so lightweight, if he is just a you know an ordinary populist, if he is a caricature, why does it take you know the the, the army, the military high command, backed by thirteen parties, backed by the full coercive power of the state, to neutralize him? I mean, surely it, you know a caricature should be dealt with far more easily. So so the you know the, the whole discourse is is frankly incoherent. Um, I, I did want to touch on the question of resistance, if we have any time left, uh, do we? 
I, I, I'm, I'm around. So yeah, you decide. Okay. I'm okay. So, yeah. Just to kind of wrap this up, because um, uh, you, you mentioned pacifism, and I mean, that's, this is really important because this is the kind of, this is key to his political thought uh, or philosophy, if you like. Um, the question is where where he stands now, um, you know, with, with with the regime literally hounding him, trying to iso isolate him, uh, trying to decimate his party, um, and you know, keep him under continuous intimidate threats of intimidation, assassination, so on and so forth. With somewhere between ten thousand and twenty five thousand workers, I've, I've heard that figure by the way, twenty five thousand workers in jail, and you know, the the entire reign of terror, the whole panoply of of brute methods that this regime is using to suppress support for him, has he reached? Ha, has he reached the kind of the limits of pacifism as as a form of resistance? What do you think? Because you know, so far his struggle has been entirely couched within um, legality, you know, respect for the constitution, nonviolence, so on and so forth. So, I, I, how would you? I think there are two things. There's two things there. I think firstly, it's important to remember the history of um, resistance and transformation is full of political parties that have been destroyed or imprisoned. Like yeah. the ANC in mm -hmm. South Africa was bad. Nelson Mandela was in prison for 27 years. Um, you know, there are many, many examples where you can see Khomeini was in exile, all of these things. And it's not to talk about these kind of, these figures being particularly charismatic or whatever, but even in take something like in 1971, when, um, you know, as I maintain, and this is not a, uh, I'm not misspeaking here, when what was West Pakistan left Pakistan, uh, which mm. I think is a better way of understanding the um, crisis um, of <laughs> what was East Pakistan. Um, but if you think about it, that project completely failed. The idea that mass repression, putting Majiba Rahman, destroying the Awami League will actually lead to what? It led to the division of the country. It led to the division of the largest Muslim country in the world. And so I think the idea that firstly, you know, that this, you know, at this moment in time, it may, and this argument, this will be completely crushed. And I think one of the things I've tried to say here is that these ideas cannot be crushed because these ideas will continue to circulate and they don't circulate yeah. just in yeah. this country, mm -hmm. they circulate across. So that's not really on the cards here. Um, so that's the first thing. I think the other thing about whether uh, kind of a, a kind of a juridical or legal route is still possible or not. I think really what happens is this, when this you break the kind of constitutional order yourself and you break the grammar of even military regimes at yourself, you've already broken that. And the question is this, then what will happen subsequently and what can happen? I think what Imran Khan and many are, I would imagine are very concerned is that nobody wants to see civil war in the country, mm. in in, mm. in Pakistan, it will be you know it can it's it's incredibly and I think there is an element of that. However, um, the question then becomes is that they you may argue that there is already a civil war brewing, but it's basically in which the um, state is unleashing the levels of violence, which will lead to responses and things. So I think it's too early to tell. Mm -hmm. I think in mm -hmm. terms of his own okay. position at this point in time. Um, you know, the people who, because he seems to have that kind of popular mandate, which I think you made a very good point that if he didn't have that mandate, why are there so much reluctance to have elections or all of these things? If he was actually the figure of the caricatures of the West toxicated, mm -hmm. he would mm -hmm. call the elections, call his bluff. That would be the end of it. The fact that the whole thing has grinded to a halt 
tells you that you know that narrative that analysis is flawed so the question really is this that is there a legal way but you would have to for there to be a legal way you'd have to say that pakistan is actually in a state of law right now and it isn't so even carrying out what was legal before April the 2nd was no longer necessarily legal or not. Abductions of journalists or abductions of these things, you know, people say, well, this always happened. The point is that even it is happening at a scale or intensity at a particular moment in time, which interrupts the narrative of there being a legal imposition of violence. So when the state loses its legitimacy of legal violence, then already I think you're in a very different um so I don't think the question is whether he will be legal or not, because that puts mm. the onus on them and it puts the idea that the PTI is breaking the law and things like that. But mm. my argument would be that it's actually the uh, of the, so the kleptocrats and their handlers mm. who are breaking the law. Yeah. And again, within that, you can see factions who recognize that there is, you know, we know that there were um, groupings and things will say, actually, you are the ones who are breaking the law. Um, so the question of the law now is that the law has to be made. And I think one thing that, you know, perhaps is another possibility is that it might be worth thinking about a new constitutional order coming through. Um, that You know, the, this constitution is now completely bankrupt, um, has been ripped to shreds by those who are supposed mm -hmm. to be defending it. Um, and I think that opens up another kind of conversation as what is a kind of arrangement to have. Um, so I think all of these are up, and I think it'll be this binaryism of legal or illegal, I think leads us into this thing about whether um, this is really a radical party, this is trying to overthrow the order, rather than actually a much more interest, a much more compelling situation, that the legal order, the custodians of the law have broken the law. And what does that mean in the situation when the custodians of the law are breaking the law? Mm. Um, you know, the Supreme Court and courts keep on asking to produce these people, these people keep disappearing. I mean, some of the excuses are almost children wouldn't make. So when you're living in a state of lawlessness, then I don't think the argument is there about law or not law, because the question is, has gone beyond that anymore. Yeah, I think there is. I don't know what Sharon would. Uh, yeah, I think there is an interesting tension there. That on the one hand, you could read his hesitance to, for example, call a million man march, etc., million yeah. person march, as being, you know, keeping a door open to. Uh, remaining on good ties with the establishment. One could have a cynical reading by saying that he's not brave enough for all of that. But one could also have the reading that he, this again ties to the pacifism part, that he realizes that this kind of a million person march can lead to tremendous violence and catastrophe. And perhaps the the the, the political objective perhaps is not as important as uh, hundreds of lives. Uh, but I think the other contradiction or tension here is that the more that the state engages in this kind of violence, the more it is exposing its fragility, that ultimately it is about the fragility of the modern state and fragility yeah. of modern state sovereignty. Uh, and the more fragile it is, the more it leads to this kind of horrific acts of violence. So if he lets all this happen, it ultimately will crumble. This is unsustainable, both from a socioeconomic perspective in terms of bankruptcy, but also from a moral bankruptcy perspective. Uh, and in some ways, uh, the military elite's complete uh, moral bankruptcy and its theological uh, bankruptcy. I mean, to make the argument that a that a building or some kind of a house of the core commander is more important than 30 lives is both logically flawed and theologically deeply immoral. So it really is exposing the deeply immoral nature of a neo-colonial entity called the military elite, uh, uh, who 
at different points in time have ultimately acted as, and I did not use the perverse language earlier, but I will now, have primarily acted as pimps of the US empire. That is becoming very, very clear. And I think there is something mm. positive coming out of that politics, even though there is tremendous you know, hardship and violence and uh, strife. And you know, from a counterintuitive perspective, it, this may not be the best time to come into power. Uh, would he really want to come into power and have to handle this kind of Pakistan? I think if he can manage to stay alive, uh, this political setup will crumble on its own uh, on its own head because this is unsustainable. And we all know that, however you might be critical of Imran Khan, uh, he is infinitely more interesting, more sophisticated, and uh, more complex than the Sharifs and the Bhuttos and their most recent progeny, whose uh, primary claim to fame is the collision of parental chromosomes. Uh, so uh, <laughs> good that they expose themselves even further. Yeah. Um, I am. I, I wish I was as. Inshallah, I think I would say to what uh, Shirley just said there. Um, but uh, there is also a part that I think one is worth thinking about. If you look at, for example, what's happening in Manama, and you look at what's happening in Egypt, you can have a situation which doesn't get better and just carries on being a, a nightmare scenario. Um, and I think really that's what I think that without. Um, Without some, I don't think the this thing will crumble on its own necessarily. I think there's a, uh, I think it would require some kind of mobilization. I think there are too mm -hmm. many. I think it's quite clear with the way that the um, established <laughs> liberal order has um, said that you didn't. They never suddenly they've discovered they never had to interfere in local affairs and things. So clearly, um, the way that it's been covered and not covered, that there is a certain kind of. Uh, they are treating it in the way they would have whether the treatment of the coup against um to um ak party was that you know yes well you know these things happen kind of thing so um so i think that's completely a part of that i think the real challenge right now is that to what extent in egypt i believe that in egypt and turkey the um the west toxicated were able to monopolize the narrative which made it easier for this um the opposition to the um, to any kind of opening uh, opposition to uh, freedom um, to be supported, and I think here the role of the Pakistani diaspora has been far more challenging for the West toxicated to monopolize simply because of the numbers, because of the exposure of racism, anti-colonialism, etc. And that is one of the um, theaters where there will be a battle of ideas. Um, and I think that's why I think among the diasporas in Pakistan, there is a possibility, given that they're overwhelmingly supporting um, the, you know, the project of greater freedom in Pakistan, to actually at least dent that narrative becoming hegemonic, which says that, you know, basically um, Imran Khan is just a puppet of the military and this is just an internal thing and it will sort itself out and we want grown-ups in the room kind of thing, running the country, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's where the thing is, but I don't necessarily believe that things will crumble um, without developments. I think they could just carry on and on and like that. And I think that is that is the most dangerous outcome as well. Mm -hmm. The suffering doesn't end. Mm -hmm. I think on that note, maybe some children for another. All right, let me put it in a positive way. The suffering doesn't end unless we do something to unless people of goodwill. Uh, Pakistani, non-Pakistani, Muslim, non-Muslim, actually engage and think about what, how important it is to be active in this front. Because again, 
one you know it's a very big country it has a lot of what will happen there will have repercussions for many you don't but ultimately i think it is it is really a question about time to be engaged with this issue because you know considering the uh, reporting that's been was given in iran to uh, opposition to the regime etc so it's very odd that this has been going for a year and it's hardly ever noted so i think it's really important that we see this as a major struggle for the possibility of a better future for all. I think um, that's probably the, the best that we can hope for at the moment. So, so basically the resistance goes on and it grows, it evolves, it changes, but it goes on. Yeah, and just a quick Inshallah. plea for, for alliances that this is perhaps not the most uh, appropriate moment to be, uh, you know, uh, uh, examining the democratic uh, credentials of Imran Khan or to look at is this something new or has a precedence to my friends on the left that ultimately this is a great possibility of alliances uh, you know as mm -hmm. ultimately a Pathan from Balochistan when I see people in Lahore also now uh, you know uh, talking about the military lead I think it's that's a great moment uh, and these are possibilities yeah. of uh, some alliances uh, rather than this whole idea of until and unless we've completely decimated the integrity of this one figure, we will not engage in any kind of political alliance. I think that's a very myopic understanding of political mobilization, ultimately. So on that note, I'll, I'll conclude. Great. Well, it, it's, it's been a real privilege talking to you both. And uh, no doubt we'll carry on the conversation because there is so much to say. Thank you so point. much. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Yeah, awesome. This has been an episode of Radio Reorient, brought to you by Network Reorient, part of the Critical Muslim Studies Project. Your host has been Hizamir, and the episode has been sound engineered by Zubair Vakil. Thank you for tuning in. Have a listen to our other episodes, and please leave a like and a rating.